Well, it is, it is truly a joy to be back. Good to see you. Eric. And uh, thank you for that. <laughs> Appreciate that. It's a delight to be back. Uh, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, it's good for our family to be back. It's good to be back home. It's good to be back here. And um, it's good to be back opening God's word with you. Um, we're deeply grateful on behalf of Tara and our, our kids. We're deeply grateful for this 10-week sabbatical that you have given so generously to us. Uh, I know that more than likely most of you, if not almost all of you perhaps in this room are thinking like, that'd be great. I'd love a 10-week paid vacation from my job. And that'll probably not be a reality for for lots of you. And uh, so it's not something we take lightly or flippantly, the the incredible generosity that you've given to us and allowing us to be gone these, these 10 weeks. And uh, they were 10 weeks of, of nourishment for us and encouragement, and uh, we had the opportunity to do some traveling and uh, worship even at other churches. And so I mean it when I say, like, there's no place like home, and there's no place like being here. There's lots of great churches, lots of fantastic, faithful churches out there. Uh, but we love you. You are loved, and we love being here. There's no place we'd rather be on the Lord's Day morning than right here together. And on top of that, I just want to say thank you again for the the immense privilege that you allow me week after week after week to stand here and open God's word for us. Um, That is not, again, a privilege that I take lightly. And and I think even these 10 weeks, not preaching for 10 weeks, it was just such a a helpful reminder of... uh, of, of that desire like down to my bones to just open God's word together, to study it and to proclaim it and to see it and to try to show it and, and, and communicate it in such a way that we would all delight more in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I also want to say a, a thank you publicly to our incredible elders and staff who over the last 10 weeks have shouldered extra responsibilities in addition to their already very full job description. And they served well, and, uh, and re- we really didn't skip a beat at all. Um, so I kind of came back, and some people were like, like, we didn't know you were gone. And that's a great thing to have happen. And, um, and they worked really hard. So as you see them around, just thank them for helping to pick up some of the extra slack and some of my job description. I also want to say a, a very special thank you to the men who stood here week after week and fed us all from God's word, and uh, we were well fed, and they were faithful uh, as we would expect, and uh, I so appreciate being able to leave and know that God's word would be proclaimed, and the flock would be fed, and uh, I was nourished by that in the times we were here, and in the times we weren't nourished via YouTube uh, through that as well sometimes, and um, I'm grateful, grateful to those men. Now, Uh, Before we jump into our text this morning, let me just kind of give us a a roadmap ahead. And if you saw the YouTube video I made this week, which let me just say, if it's coming from me and it's on YouTube, uh, hopefully the content will be helpful, but the production quality is going to be low. So just know that like creative stuff, tech stuff is not my wheelhouse. We've got a new pastoral assistant you'll hear more about who's starting in a couple of weeks that'll be working with me throughout the next year, and uh, he's really good at that, so maybe that'll increase. So if, if you're just like, man, the production quality is pretty, pretty, pretty bad, um, it's just more about getting that information to you. But I went over some of that in that video, and I just wanted to kind of refresh so that we're all on the same page. 
This morning, we are going to begin a six-week mini-series on our mission and kind of core values here at CCF. And so we're going to, each Sunday, preach expositionally. We're going to take one text of Scripture and open up that text of Scripture and understand that text of Scripture. Um, But unlike our normal pattern, which is taking a book of the Bible and working through, like we've been doing with Luke, um, we're going to kind of be in different places of Scripture from week to week. Now, the reason I think it's important for us to kind of revisit our mission and our core values um, is kind of twofold. Because you might be thinking to yourself, well, it seems like some of this is familiar. Did we do this before? And the answer is yes. Two and a half years ago, we did a very similar six-week series where we talked about our vision and our core values. But I think it's important to repeat that to some degree now. Um, It won't be the exact same messages, but there'll be some similarities. First of all, because repetition is really helpful. And it's good for us from time to time to have kind of a, in the Old Testament, it would be called an Ebenezer Stone moment to step back and to be reminded why we exist as a church and the things that we believe are important as a church. The second reason I think it's important after two and a half years to revisit these themes is because some of you, many of you, were not here two and a half years ago. And in God's grace, he has brought you to us in the last two and a half years. And so I think this mini-series can be helpful, especially next week and the following weeks as we welcome back many college students to help us all kind of get on the same page. This is what we're about. This is our mission. These are our, our strategic values. So with that said, I want to begin this morning not with our mission statement itself, but I want to begin with our text here in Matthew 28. After all, scripture is far more important than any human made, designed mission statement. But since our mission statement is, in fact, an, an attempt to kind of capture all of what scripture teaches about the mission of God for Christians and the church, I think it's good to begin with scripture, specifically Matthew 28, and then we're going to work out from there at the end to see how that fits in with our mission statement. So we're going to spend most of our time in Matthew 28. At the end, we'll apply that to our mission statement. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Follow along as I read. I'm going to read our text again, not because Amy didn't do a good job earlier, but because it's short and I think it's good for us to be reminded. The word of the Lord says, verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's just imagine for a moment the scene that's unfolding here. 
First of all, the timing of the scene is after Jesus' resurrection and likely just moments before Jesus' ascension or his return in the air back to the Father. The place is a mountain in Palestine. Now, this might seem like a small detail in verse 16, but it's actually quite important because throughout the book of Matthew, mountains are frequently a place where God communicates his truth to his people. For example, we think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Or you might think about Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, which happened on a mountain, which is why it's often called the Mount of Transfiguration. Or in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus taught about his return one day from a mount called Olivet, which is why it's sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. And here, once more, Jesus meets with his disciples on a mountain to communicate something important. Now, we don't have time to to unpack how all of this connects back to the Old Testament, but in one, I just want to highlight one distinct way, and that is you might remember all the way back in the Old Testament, in Exodus, the people of God gathered together at the foot of a mountain called Mount Sinai. And the messenger of God, Moses, went up on the mountain, and Yahweh, God, communicated to his messenger, Moses, his laws and his ways for the people of God so that they could come down off the mountain. Moses could communicate the message and the word of God, and the people of God could go and be and do what God had called them to be and do. And now, once more, God the Son ascends to a mountain and he gathers together his people around him, the people of Yahweh, and he once more gives a commission to this people about what they are to be and what they are to do as followers of God so that they could go out and be and do all that Yahweh had called them to be and do. And this now was not restricted to ethnic Jews, but it was restricted to everyone who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And so Jesus is gathered together. We have the time, we have the place. What about the people? Verse 16 tells us that the cast of individuals with Jesus here were the 11 disciples. You might be thinking, well, wait, didn't Jesus have 12 disciples? And he did, but by now Judas had already betrayed Jesus and was no longer alive. So these are the 12 remaining disciples, and they gather together to meet with Jesus. And look at what happens next, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. We're not necessarily sure what to do with those who doubted here. But the original word in the Greek here for doubt refers more to hesitation than outright unbelief. Jesus likely looked different. In fact, we see evidence of even some of his closer followers not immediately recognizing Jesus after his resurrection. For example, in the garden, right after Jesus was resurrected, Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize Jesus at first. And in fact, as Jesus walked along the the Emmaus Road with these two individuals, these two men, and was talking with them, they didn't recognize Jesus. In fact, Jesus is leading them through an Old Testament Bible study from like A to Z, and they still don't recognize Jesus until much later. 
And so it's quite likely that even as Jesus now appeared to his 11 followers, some immediately worshiped Jesus as they recognized him, and some, maybe others, weren't quite sure how to react. As an aside, just extra credit, um, I think it's helpful if you are this morning wrestling with doubts about the truthfulness of God's word, or if you've ever wrestled with, I don't know if like, if I can really totally completely trust the Bible, it's helpful to have sections of scripture like this. Because if Matthew were creating this and fabricating this account on his own, he would never have added in that some doubted. Because this is not flattering to those 11 apostles, the 11 disciples who are gathered here. Like, this is less than ideal. If he were making this up and writing this as a screenplay, he would have written something like, and when the 11 saw him, they immediately fell at his feet and worshipped him as the Son of God. Rightly so he is. But the fact that Luke honestly tells us exactly what happened, some worshipped and some doubted, some weren't quite so sure, some hesitated. I think it's just another small piece of evidence that what we have in the Bible, and specifically here in Matthew, is a truthful account. Now, as we look at the, the core of this text, I want to divide this up into three sections. So if you're taking notes, we'll have three main points this morning. The authority of Jesus, the commission of Jesus, and the promise of Jesus. And if you're looking at the text and hearing those three main points and thinking, well, of course, like I could have come up with that. It's really obvious. That's kind of the idea. <laughs> Hopefully every week you see that and you're like, oh, that makes complete sense how that's divided up. Let's begin with the authority of Jesus. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, some authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. No, he didn't say that. Most authority in heaven and earth. No. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Jesus gathers his, his followers together. They're on a mountain, which likely for Jesus' first audience, these 11 disciples would have already communicated that something important is about to happen. Because we're with Jesus and we're now on a mountain. And Jesus has called us to himself on this mountain, and mountains are frequently where something significant happens. And Jesus opens by reminding them, communicating to them, hey, guess what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we know that it was given to him by the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 reminds us, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father has given, and Jesus has never given back, has never like rescinded. Jesus Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Think about that for a minute. Even today, Jesus Christ, God the Son, possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. That means Jesus 
has authority over the weather, over our health. He has authority over the government, over our elected officials. He has authority over elections and ballots and wars. It means that Jesus has authority over your marriage or over your singleness. He has authority over your classwork, your job search. And it means that Jesus has authority over the salvation of your lost family member. He has authority over the healing of your spouse. And because Jesus not only has all authority, but because he is also, we know from Scripture, good and just, we can rest, church. There is never a need as Christians for us to wring our hands in anxiety over the events of our world or even the events in our own homes or the events in our own hearts. Because we have a Savior who is on the throne, who possesses absolute power and control. And He is good. All authority is in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Secondly, notice this morning the commission of Jesus. This is almost said in, in of course it's said in following uh, all the authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, verse 19. And Jesus says, go therefore, and the therefore ought to remind us to go back and see what it's there for, right? It follows all authority in heaven and on earth. So you can almost imagine as, as Jesus is saying to his followers who are now on the mountain are wondering why we're here and Jesus says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You can imagine how they all in that moment were beginning to lean in like, okay, what is he going to say next? I mean, if you sat down for lunch with someone who said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and I have a message for you. First of all, you say, okay, you're probably a lunatic, right? Like, you don't have all authority. But if that person is God the Son, who is truthful when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and then he's about to say something, you, you better make sure you're listening because what he is about to say is really important. Especially because he adds the therefore, go therefore, or in light of all my authority, this is what you are to do. This is how you are to respond. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. As Jesus looked out at this eclectic group of 11 men, he knew that they would now be entrusted to carry the most important message of all time. From the faithfulness of these men, the church would be born. Billions of people would hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and countless disciples would be made. But to the 11 on this day, this commission likely came as a shock. Like, you want us to do what? Like, have you noticed who we are, Jesus? Have you walked with us these three years and seen our failures and our shortcomings? Oh, by the way, none of us have graduated seminary. You want us to do what? What? 
Go make disciples of all nations. And notice that in Jesus' words here, he gives to them and he gives to us the scope of this commission. He, He gives us some important details that would be good for us to notice. First, notice that this is a global commission. The disciples were not to keep the message of Jesus Christ to themselves. And they were not to assume that the good news of Jesus Christ was only for the Jews. Jesus makes it explicit that this is a message for all nations and for all people groups. Which is why this is the message that we honor when we send out missionaries and we support them on the field. Whether it's in Thailand or Bolivia or Africa or Europe It's the reason we send out pastors and teachers to to go encourage the pastors in Micronesia. It's the reason that many of you go and give up spring break and take some time out during the summer to go around the globe with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go and make disciples because this is a global commission. But the fullest weight of emphasis in verse 19 is on make disciples. As one commentator writes, to make disciples of all nations does require many people to leave their homelands. But Jesus' main focus remains on the task of all believers to duplicate themselves wherever they may be. You see, there's another dimension we need to think about when we think about making disciples of all nations because this isn't just a global commission. This is also a generational commission. Like all nations means that this is not only a commission to go to every nation, but to every generation. So that every generation hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, is made a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, this is why the work of parenting is a part of the Great Commission. Because we can't just settle for every nation, we also have to reach every generation. That's why one of the things we seek to do here at CCF is be really intentional about the things that are taught and the way those things are taught in the Kidman classrooms and when the youth gather together. Because this is, this is also a generational commission to raise up followers who will come behind us long after we're gone. It's one of the reasons we take parent and child dedication seriously, to make disciples at home, because the most fruitful harvest oftentimes of disciples comes from our own children who hear and see the gospel at home. Your role, dads and moms, is to model the gospel of Jesus Christ and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to show your kids Jesus Christ, not only through your faith, but also through your failure. As they see you repent and model what forgiveness looks like. As you show your kids why even dad and mom need the gospel every single day. This great commission to make disciples is both global and generational. But Jesus goes on now to give some more specifics of what disciple making Involved. So if you're, you're an outliner and you just want to kind of think about it in terms of an outline, Jesus has just communicated that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, go make disciples of every nation. And now I, I'm arguing that, that a way to understand this is what Jesus says next 
by baptizing and teaching are kind of the two subcategories of what it means to make disciples. So he's kind of getting more granular. He's dialing in the microscope and saying, okay, we have make disciples. If you want to break that down and understand what it looks like to make disciples, we have baptizing and we have teaching. Now, let's be clear, we make disciples by baptism, but let's be clear that nowhere in Scripture are we told that baptism itself by water saves anyone. Let me say that again. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that water baptism alone saves anyone. And yet, Jesus commands his followers to be baptized. And in fact, every single Christian... In the New Testament, after the church was established, was baptized as a believer, was baptized after professing faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, baptism is so important in the Bible that it's often used as a a shorthand way of describing those who are baptized after turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. And I'm arguing that that's what baptism means here. Jesus is saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He isn't just concerned, in fact, I would argue he's not even primarily at all concerned that we just get people dunked, but rather baptism is a shorthand way of describing everything that baptism symbolizes, which is faith and repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ and turning and believing it's, so it's kind of like when you get to know someone and you might ask them, like, where did you graduate from? I mean, most of us know in that moment what's being asked is where did you study, what did you study, like the background. But the graduation ceremony is just a shorthand way of describing the educational process as a whole. I think very few of us really care about the ceremony itself. Maybe you did, like that was was your reason for education. I just want the diploma. For most of us, it's about the education, what we want to learn, what we want to discover, how we want to be equipped. And in the same way, baptism refers to more than just dunking people in water. It's the visible expression of all that, that, that salvation involves, seeing God's glory for what it is, seeing our sin in our need of salvation, seeing the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, God's perfect son, gave up his life on the cross, rose again from the dead, dying in our place as sinners. By faith, we might repent and turn and believe and trust in him. And all of that is encapsulated when so often when scripture refers to baptism. So baptism here in verse 19 assumes then evangelism and conversion. We make disciples by baptism. But not only baptism, notice also verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we make disciples by baptism. We make disciples also by teaching the baptized to obey Christ. Because we're not just called to make converts who profess Christ, we're called to make disciples who obey Christ. Let's just pause here for a moment, because anytime we start to talk about obedience, there's a tendency for us doctrines of grace kind of people sometimes to to have our palms begin to get a little bit sweaty. Because what we want to say is, okay, wait a minute, 
Remember, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to Scripture, alone. And saving faith is the free gift of God, not the result of our efforts. In fact, we are sustained by God's hold on us, not our grasp on him through our efforts. And all of that is completely true. And yet, when we understand the comprehensive teaching of Scripture, we can also say with the Reformers that we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It always brings with it transformation. As God's Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts as believers and begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit and change us from the inside out. And so making disciples clearly means teaching Christians, teaching the baptized how to obey everything Jesus has commanded us. And being a Christian clearly means we strive to obey what Jesus has taught us, knowing, yes, that even as we stumble and even as we fail, there is grace and there is mercy. That the basis of our salvation is not that we obey with perfection but that Jesus already was perfectly obedient. So we have the authority of Jesus, the commission of Jesus. Third, notice the promise of Jesus. This is wonderful because Jesus has just communicated that he is possessed with all authority in heaven and on earth. He's now commissioned his followers to go and make disciples of all nations And he's told us how to make disciples through baptism, which means evangelism and conversion and teaching, which includes discipling and counseling and encouragement. Now Jesus adds this precious, precious promise. And behold, verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus does not say, I will be with you always. He says, I am with you. In fact, the English preacher Matthew Henry wrote, as God sent Moses, so Christ sent his disciples by this name. I am. For he is God to whom past and present and to come are the same. Jesus is reminding his followers, I am with you. Like We don't have to go alone. We don't go alone as we seek to do the work of the Lord. He says, I, I'm with you. You're going to succeed, I'm with you. You're going to fail, I'm with you. You're going to seek to make disciples. You're going to share the gospel. You're going to evangelize and people will reject it. I am with you. You're going to share the gospel and people will receive me. And I am with you. You're going to seek to to make disciples and you're going to seek to teach. And you're going to do that imperfectly sometimes. And you're going to miss opportunities to share the gospel. And you're going to sometimes give advice that's wrong, not because you mean to, but because later on you grow in your faith and realize, I shouldn't have said that. And I am with you. 
What's more, this Jesus is at the very end of his time on earth. In fact, if you've got a Bible in front of you, and hopefully you do, just flip, keep your finger there. Flip back to the left with me, all the way to Matthew chapter 1. We'll just flip back, what, 27 chapters to Matthew chapter 1. So this text that we have been in this morning, these are the last words of Jesus before he ascends to the Father. Like the last words of his physical presence in ministry on the earth. And now we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 1. This is right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, talking about Jesus' arrival into our world. So Jesus has not even been born yet. And at the end of Matthew chapter 1, an angel comes to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, and says, hey, guess what? Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. I know that she is pregnant, and I know that this baby is conceived of the Holy Spirit and not you. You are not to be afraid to take this woman, Mary, home as your wife because this is a work of the Holy Spirit. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel goes on, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew, kind of as the voice of the narrator, joins in. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So right as Jesus was about to be born, an angel comes to Joseph and says, do not be afraid. Because Emmanuel, God with us, is about to be born. And then God came in the flesh, God the Son, and lived on this earth. And taught and preached and ministered and did miracles. And called people to repent and to believe and to trust. And now he's at the end of his earthly ministry and he's about to pass the baton off to these 11 who will pass the baton to others, who will pass the baton to others all the way up until today. And he comforts them with these final words, reminding them once again, I am Emmanuel. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And it must have had the same effect on Jesus' disciples here in Matthew 28, that it had on Moses. You remember Moses, again, at Mount Sinai. He, he has this, bur- or before Mount Sinai, he has this burning bush moment where he is, he is exposed to the presence of God through this burning bush. And God, Yahweh, calls Moses to go back to Egypt and to be his chosen instrument to release the people of God from slavery. And you remember Moses is like, absolutely, I've been waiting my whole life for this. I feel qualified, I feel ready. My whole life has prepared me for this moment. (laughs) Not at all. Moses is like, yeah, right. (laughs) I am the last person you want. I'm not gifted, I'm not eloquent, I don't think well, speak well. There is no way I can do this job. And besides, if I go, and if I declare to the people that the the Egyptians, that God said, let my people go. And then they say, well, who is your God? What am I supposed to say then? And God said, you are to say to them, I am 
sent you. So Moses goes in the power and the strength and the comfort of I am. And Jesus now sends his followers not to Egypt, but he sends his followers into the darkness, into a dark world where people are held captive by sin, slaves to sin, slaves to the enemy. And he says to them, let not your heart be troubled. You know why? I am is with you. Always. Even to the very end of the age. Now, let's kind of wrap this up and apply this now to our mission statement. Our purpose statement, of course you all have this memorized, But our purpose statement is we exist, right, to love and glorify and enjoy God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is not profound. This is not like, you know, Apple revealing some great product that no one's thought of before and everyone's mind is blown. Like, this is just straight up pretty much Bible, right? Like, this is our mission. It's to love And to glorify and enjoy God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do in the next three to five minutes is I just want to take that sentence apart. We're going to kind of split it in half. We're going to put one section under the microscope. And I just want to kind of give some examples of why and how we seek to do that here at CCF. And we'll take that out and put the second half under the microscope. Do the same thing. And then we'll wrap all that together in an hour or so. I got 10 weeks built up within me, so we'll go 10 hours instead of. All right, first, the first piece of our mission statement is we exist to love and glorify and enjoy God. I mean, this is pretty simple, right? In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus tells his followers to love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind and with all their strength. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so exalting God, glorifying God, means loving him and enjoying him. One author writes, glory is one of those often used and not well understood biblical words. Because there's no one synonym for glory. To give God glory is to give him the praise and the honor and the worship and the service that alone belong to him as God. Because glory... Well, glorify isn't always a word that we use, probably don't ever use apart from church or theological conversations or Bible reading. I think it might be helpful to just kind of share the fact that we glorify things and glory in things all the time. So for example, if you you try a new recipe this afternoon and then you, you share it with maybe your family or a friend or a neighbor and they're like, this is amazing. What do you do? Are you like texting your friends? Like, guess what? I tried this amazing new recipe. You have to try it. Or you then make that recipe and then you take it to your friend's house the next day. And you're like, we have to have this. This is absolutely phenomenal. So good. You have experienced something so incredible, so amazing, 
that you want others to experience that same thing. You find joy and satisfaction and amazement in this recipe. And what are you doing? You are glorifying the recipe. You are glorying in and delighting in and enjoying and loving that recipe. And there's nothing wrong with that in its right and proper place. Or you show up at your friend's house, right, at 8 o'clock on a Sunday night, head to toe in your favorite team apparel. And then you sit on a couch in a place of worship, right, surrounded by nachos and cheese and pretzels and pizza, and then your team scores, and you jump up in praise and worship. You lift your hands to the heavens, right? Why? Because you're so excited that your team has just scored. Because you love your team, and you love when they do well, and you want others to know how much you love your team. What are you doing? You are glorifying that team. You're glorifying those individuals. You're delighting in the fact that they just achieved their purpose. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, and it's right and proper place. But I use those examples to simply show you we glorify and glory in things all the time. It simply means those things that we delight in, we enjoy, we want to share with others. Like come and experience the wonder of what I have experienced. And we as a church exist for that reason. We exist to say with our voices and with our lives, look at our God. Who is like our God? Look at the salvation that our God has accomplished through Jesus. Look at his incredible love for his own. Look at his infinite worth. Look at his incomparable wisdom. Look at his perfect justice. Look at our God. Isn't he amazing? So we sing songs that point our hearts and call our hearts to look at the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of our God. And we read scripture together that reframes our hearts and our minds because we all come in each and every week having all different kinds of experiences and some of us are just dragging in here or some of us have been so consumed with other things or some of us have the idols of our heart, a hobby, an interest, a passion, a person that's creeping up and, and robbing us of the rightful glory that belongs to the Lord and so we read scripture together. And we pray in such a way that reminds us that God alone is worthy of glory and honor and praise, that God alone is the sure and steady anchor of our lives, that he is the foundation, that he is the vision. Remember, brothers and sisters, you have been redeemed not just to follow Jesus, but to enjoy him. And then finally, the second part of that phrase We love and glorify and enjoy God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And a disciple is someone who goes all in to follow someone else. A disciple gives of their time and their attention to model their life after the one that they follow. And the reason that we say in our mission statement, the reason I should say we don't say we love and glorify and enjoy God by making disciples is because we are first not disciple makers, we are first disciples ourselves. And as Christians, our identity isn't just what we do, it's who we are based on what Christ has done. So we are first and foremost disciples who have been purchased by the death of Christ to be adopted into a new family, which is a great place to rest this morning, friends. We can rest in the finished work of Jesus because we are not identified by what we do. 
but by whose we are. And in Christ, we live and we move and we have our being. And then we take up the baton to make disciples. And this means we make disciples not just because we're commanded to make disciples, but we make disciples because one of the ways we love God, one of the ways we glorify and enjoy God is by making disciples. Again, to use the the recipe analogy, what are you doing? You are trying to make disciples of this recipe, right? Like, you need to try it. You need to make it for yourself because it's that amazing. You're proselytizing based on your, you know, macaroni recipe or whatever. Like, you need to try it. You need to do it. Make it yourself. And then you need to tell others about it. That's what the church of Jesus Christ exists to do. That's what the followers of Jesus exist to do. So we teach the word of God and we preach the word of God and we counsel the word of God and we sing the word of God and we pray the word of God that through the power of the Holy Spirit God may help us to increasingly love and glorify and enjoy him as we rest as his children and seek to do the work of making disciples of every nation that he may be well pleased. Because after all, he is worthy, isn't he? He's worthy of every song we could ever sing, every prayer we could ever pray, every scripture passage, every good deed, every act of service we could ever do. He's worthy of our adoration, our affection, our love, our desires, our joy. He's more worthy than any recipe, any sports team, any hobby, any interest, any other human person. He's worth building the foundation of our lives upon. Would you pray with me? Father God, this morning, you are worthy. As we sing these songs, this song now, I pray that this might be our prayer to you this morning, that you would align our hearts to these glorious truths found in Matthew chapter 28. Thank you for saving your own. Thank you for calling us to the work that you have given to us. Pray that we would not do it begrudgingly, but joyfully. We would delight in being your children, that we would delight in joining into our Father's work. For your glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name.